I am Lindsay Ford, the Director for Political Security Affairs here at the Asia Society Policy Institute, and you are listening to the latest episode of Asia Inside Out. We are taping on the road today. We're here in Singapore, part of a conference that ASPE and the National University of Singapore's Middle East Institute are hosting on the new geopolitics of East and West Asia. We're lucky to have James Acton, who is the Jessica T. Matthews Chair, co-director of the Nuclear Policy Program at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, joining us for the conference and as our guest on today's episode. So today we're going to talk about nuclear proliferation and the challenges the Trump administration is facing juggling dueling nuclear breakout problems in both East Asia and the Middle East, one in North Korea, one in Iran. James, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Lindsay. So, James, it's fascinating to me that for a while it seemed like nuclear policy was maybe going to go the way of the dinosaurs, but all of a sudden nukes are really hot again. And in particular with this administration, for all the talk about great power competition, it actually seems like the problem set that is sucking up a tremendous amount of everybody's time is Iran and North Korea. So to get us started, help us just have a better understanding of the current state of play. Um, Because honestly, I think for non-nuclear folks, it can be a little confusing sometimes to actually keep track, especially right now, of what's actually going on with Iran and North Korea's nuclear programs. We started off the Trump administration, seemed like North Korea was the worst nuclear threat out there. Now we have the President Kim Jong-un meeting for the third time. Iran, we started off with with the JCPOA deal from the Obama administration actually in place. Now it's not. Now it seems like we're focusing all of our nuclear attention on Iran. So break down for me the current status of each country's nuclear program and how significant a nuclear threat we actually face from both Iran and North Korea. Sure. So both of these countries have had nuclear programs for decades. Um, And they're both coming to a head potentially at roughly the same time. So let's let's start with North Korea. Um, North Korea has tested nuclear weapons multiple times. For years, it's had a ballistic missile development program that's pretty robust. And if we go back to, say, 2017, I think at that point, North Korea had very largely demonstrated that it had the capability to land a nuclear warhead on the United States with a ballistic missile. There were a few question marks there. Uh, There was some uncertainty about precisely what North Korea's capability was. Uh, But my view by the time we got to the end of 2017 was that as a planning assumption, the United States had to assume that North Korea had the capability to land a nuclear warhead on the United States. Right. We've now seen this intensive period of diplomacy uh, between the U.S. and North Korea. Uh, North Korea has not tested a nuclear weapon uh, over the last uh, two or three years. Um, It hasn't tested long-range ballistic missiles, though it has... uh, it, it did a few tests of shorter-range missiles earlier this year. Um, the diplomacy, though, in terms of concrete actions, hasn't really accomplished very much um, beyond keeping this freeze of testing largely in place. Which the president seems to put a great emphasis on. Yeah, and it's not nothing. Like, you know, I would rather live in a world in which North Korea is not testing than a world in which it is testing. But it's also a world in which North Korea is uh, almost certainly continuing to build up and to develop its arsenal. Um, There's some stuff that it's going to need to test to do, but actually it can do quite a lot without testing, certainly in terms of continuing to build up the arsenal. 
And what's the size of that? What are the latest estimates on the size of that arsenal? Well, I mean, you know, it, 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 it's not something we have a great handle on, frankly. Um, in large part because North Korea, there's two different kinds of fuel for nuclear weapons. There's plutonium and there's highly enriched uranium. We have a pretty good handle, I think, on how much plutonium North Korea has produced. We don't have a great handle on how much highly enriched uranium North Korea has produced. Uh, and we don't know precisely how it's designing its weapons. So there is a lot of uncertainty there. Uh, but, you know, you're probably looking at a total number of nuclear warheads measured in the tens. You know, I don't know whether that's 20 or 30 or 40 or 50, but it's probably measured in the tens. In terms of the number of ballistic missiles that have long enough range to reach the United States, it's probably still like in the very low numbers of tens. But, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty on all of this. Um, you know, to catch up with the most recent developments, it appears there is now some kind of discussion in the administration uh, about whether to uh, effectively roll back the goal of complete denuclearization. Um, I think that's something we have to do at this point, personally. Um, I think the boat has long sailed on getting North Korea to give up its nuclear weapons. I think at least for the short to medium term, uh, our goal should try to be some kind of um, freeze, uh, not just of nuclear and missile testing, but also of other activities that would help North Korea develop and augment its, uh, its arsenal. What kind of activities are those? So, you know, my, my view is we're not going to get a deal with North Korea that involves Iran-style verification or anything close to it. So we're not going to get the JCPOA? We're not going to get anything close to the JCPOA with North Korea. I would focus on activities that are easy to verify without a huge amount of on-the-ground access. So, you know, the two things that I would firstly try and cement is North Korea's moratorium, in its own words, only extends to long-range ballistic missiles. I would try to get North Korea to commit to all ballistic missiles of any range. I would try to make North Korea's um, moratorium on nuclear testing uh, stronger by getting North Korea to sign the Comprehensive Nuclear Test Ban Treaty. Uh, I would try to get North Korea to agree to no plutonium production, which is something that can easily be verified without on-the-ground access, to no ground-based testing of missile engines. Again, you don't need on-the-ground access to verify that. Uh, no uh, production of a material called tritium, which would be useful for manufacturing advanced nuclear warheads. That would be phase one. I would then try to tackle no production of highly enriched uranium in phase two, which is a much more technically challenging endeavor. If we did all of that, then I might start to think much further in the future about how to actually roll back the arsenal. But that, for me, is a much longer-term goal. So when the administration says that a freeze is only the first part of their plan, what you're saying is that first part of the plan is probably going to last for a while. If we even got that far. If we even get that far. Okay. Yeah, I, I, think, I, think, I think that's right. I mean, look, I, I wouldn't, if I were... If you were president for a day... I wouldn't announce that I was giving up on the goal of denuclearization, but the way that I would structure my policy would be focused on achieving stuff that was uh, easier to accomplish and made us safer. Um, and, you know, this is the critical point. We have to be willing to give North Korea sanctions relief in return for something less than complete denuclearization. I mean, I've sometimes called my policy less for less. Right. What the president wants is a grand deal in which North Korea completely gives up its nuclear weapons um, in return for complete sanctions relief. 
you know, I would say to the North Koreans, look, we're, you know, I'm not going to ask, I, in the first instance, I'm not going to ask you for complete denuclearization, and I'm not going to give you complete sanctions, really. Let's see if we can hack out this kind of less-for-less less deal. That would be my approach. And that's, you know, that's controversial. That's something, I mean, the, there's definitely voices in the administration who favor something kind of similar. I actually think they probably want something much more ambitious than I've just laid out. And that's a very controversial position. Less for less is not a very Trumpian uh, brand. It's not, is it? It, no, it's not. <laughs> so, uh, speaking of the JCPOA and your assessment that we won't even get something as robust as the JCPOA with North Korea, let's move to Iran for a second and talk for a second about where are we now with Iran um, since the administration essentially uh, ripped up the JCPOA. Well, let's let's talk a bit about what the JCPOA accomplished first. I think I think that's a useful scene setting here. Um, Iran was discovered in August two thousand and two um, to be conducting to have violated its safeguards agreement with the IEA uh, by conducting and preparing to conduct activities that it was legally obliged to declare and didn't, uh, and that was particularly focused on enrichment in Iran. Uh, which is this uh, technology where uh, 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 Iran was developing centrifuge technology, uh, which you can use both to produce uh, fuel for nuclear reactors, but also to produce fuel for nuclear weapons. Um, and over the period of time between uh, 2002 and JCPOA was what, 2015 now? I'm trying to remember exactly what year everything was in. Iran was gradually ramping and ramping up its program uh, as the international community were ramping and ramping up sanctions. Um, and by the time the JCPOA, in fact, there was the predecessor agreement, the JPOA, which was like a kind of capping agreement before the rollback agreement. Um, you know, at that point before the JPOA came into action, Iran was, if, if it had made the political decision to build the bomb, it would have been, you know, two or three months away from being able to produce enough fissile material for the bomb. What the JCPOA, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, did uh, was it limited Iran's nuclear program. Uh, Iran had to roll back a lot of activities. It provided verification for those activities uh, in return for which Iran got sanctions relief. And in terms of what that, those limits in verification were to accomplish, the most high-profile thing that it did um, was ensure that Iran was at least a year away from being able to manufacture enough uh, highly enriched uranium for one bomb. Um, that actually wasn't all the JCPOA accomplished. Um, you know, there were there were great improvements on the International Atomic Energy Agency's ability to spot secret activities that Iran hadn't declared. Um, but the thing that got most of the headlines was this uh, one year. The Trump when uh, you know. The president ran for office saying he was going to rip up the JCPOA. So, it, you know, I think a lot of people, frankly, fooled themselves into believing that he yeah, wasn't yeah. going to do that. Uh, historically, politicians actually try to do what they say they will do. Uh, and especially when they can do that unilaterally, they really do it most of the time. And that was exactly what the president did. Uh, a year or so into his, into his administration, he had basically announced that the U.S. was withdrawing from the JCPOA. Um, or as I like to say, sometimes violated the JCPOA because there is no withdrawal clause in the JCPOA. Yeah, and I want to talk with you about this in a second, but um, go, go ahead. I mean, it's worth saying now, you know, the reason there's no withdrawal clause in the JCPOA is because we didn't want Iran to be able to withdraw from the agreement. So, And yet we're 
now accusing them, right, of violating the agreement. Right. So go ahead and explain this. So 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 the US basically said we're not going to provide sanctions relief anymore. And that was the grand quid pro quo within the JCPOA. I mean the whole reason we put sanctions relief on Iran, sorry, the whole reason we put sanctions on Iran's new, related to Iran's nuclear program in the Bush administration was nominally with the intention that if Iran changed its behavior we would lift sanctions. So um when the United States decided not to provide sanctions relief, and it was actually fairly complicated how that works, but when the United States announced it was no longer going to provide sanctions relief to Iran, uh, that always cr created the possibility that Iran was no longer going to abide by its commitments, and that's what we're now seeing. Um, it took Iran over a year to decide to violate its commitments. Iran was remaining in compliance with the JCPOA for, for, for over a year. Um, but basically, throughout that time, the Trump administration was ramping up and ramping up more and more sanctions pressure on Iran, particularly with oil sanctions. Uh, and eventually, Iran just said, en enough's enough. You know, if you're not going to abide by your side of the agreement, we're going to abide by our side of the agreement. Now, what Iran has done so far is it's exceeded the limit on how much low-enriched uranium it can hold. It's exceeded very slightly the limit on how high it can enrich. Talk the, about that, how high it can enrich and how significant what they're sure. doing now is. So in terms of, you know, the uranium you dig out the ground um, is said to be natural uranium is 0.7% enriched. What that means is only 0.7%, 7 out of every 1,000 uranium atoms you dig out the ground, uh, are useful for building bombs and reactor fuel. Um, typically, reactors, you know, you're looking at 3 to 5% enrichment. Uh, and Iran was capped, if I remember rightly, at enriching to 3.67% under the JCPOA. Uh, Iran has now announced it's going to go up to 4.5%, though it's reserved the right to go higher still. To get to a bomb, you're going to have to be at around about 90%. Um, so, the, you know, the way that I... So I, I think uh, 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 my accent notwithstanding, American football is a useful analogy here. You know, I think at the time the JCPOA was signed, Iran was in the red zone. Um, the JCPOA pushed Iran um, uh, deep within its own half, you know, maybe 60 or 70 yards away from the goal line. Uh, what Iran is now doing is a series of running plays just a couple of yards each time. It's not trying for kind of uh, a, 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 some dramatic throw to cross you know, 20 or 30 yards in a single go, it's just gradually now very slowly advancing the ball forward. And what Iran says, and what I tend to believe, frankly, is it's trying to generate leverage. Um, it's saying, particularly to the Europeans, uh, if you provide us economic incentives, we're willing to come back into compliance. Um, what the Trump administration is trying to do is make it very hard for the Europeans to provide economic incentives. Um, and this is where we get on to the way that the sanctions work. The JCPOA very largely left in place the primary U.S. embargo on Iran. The big thing the JCPOA did was it said that um, the U.S. would no longer sanction foreign businesses that wanted to do business with Iran. So these secondary sanctions were the big thing that happened in the Bush and the Obama administration. To try to cut Iran off from the international financial system generally, the U.S. Th threatened to impose sanctions on foreign businesses that wanted to do business with Iran, and that proved very effective. Um, what the Trump administration is now doing 
is um, putting those secondary sanctions back in place. Uh, cutting Iran off from the international financial system, cutting Iran off from being able to sell oil. That's the, it's those secondary sanctions which are very precisely designed to make it very hard for Europeans um, to provide the economic relief that Iran wants. So I want to talk, because you mentioned the Europeans here, but what's also interesting to me when we're talking about sanctions on Iran is actually um, other Asian countries. Um, because when you think about countries who in particular would like to be buying oil from Iran or have been buying oil from Iran over the last couple of years, actually it's, it's China, it's India, it's even Japan who really would like to be um, importing oil from Iran. So as we're thinking about a sanctions play and exerting more leverage on Iran, how much does the compliance or non-compliance of some of the big Asian players, and in particular I'm thinking about China here, actually matter for how effective that strategy can be? So the first thing to say is you're absolutely right that the administration views oil as a key lever here. Initially, the Trump administration, when it cancelled the JCPO, well, when it when it, it couldn't cancel the JCPOA, when it uh, decided to violate the JCPOA, uh, the Trump administration granted waivers to a number of Asian countries: uh, China, Japan, Taiwan, um, South Korea, that bought um, Iranian oil. So, uh, under U.S. law, they were required to reduce their purchase of Iranian oil to zero. Uh, but there were waivers in which the Trump administration said, you know, if you work in that direction, we're not going to sanction you. It doesn't have to be zero exactly. Right. That changed in May, if I remember, if, if, I've, if, if I've got my timeline right here. The Trump administration rescinded those waivers. It said you have to go to zero. And Taiwan, Japan, South Korea are there. China has reduced its purchases of Iranian oil, but they're not zero. I think there's two things to say about this strategy. The first one is, within the Trump administration's view, you know, these sanctions are critical. You know, it want, it's desperate to cut off Iran's economic um, lifeline through oil. I actually don't think that's going to be sufficient to bring Iran back to the table, is the first thing to say. Um, I think that to create the conditions under which Iran would be willing to do a deal, you need a combination of economic pressure and a willingness to remove that pressure if Iran does what we want. And I don't think Iran perceives the second one of those. Right. So I actually think that throttling Iran economically is actually quite unlikely to produce the outcome the administration wants. I think it's much more likely to lead to the complete collapse of the JCPOA. So, you know, I, I actually think it's important for states to try to find ways of providing the economic benefits to Iran to stay within the agreement. Um, um, you know, I, I think the entire, you know, it's pretty clear from this conversation, I think the JCPOA was a good deal. I think it was by far the most likely way that was available at the time to prevent Iran from building the bomb. Um, and I think the international community here should be working to try to keep this deal in place. So not looking for a new one, but actually getting back everybody back into the one we already had. Yeah, and look, nobody can object to trying to strengthen the JCPOA. Um, you know, 
the 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 my moniker for that was more for more, and that it wasn't just my moniker. But the idea, I think, behind the way to strengthen the JCPOA is not to have the thing fall apart. It, it, it's to preserve the agreement and then say to Iran, if you're willing to do more in terms of limiting your nuclear program, perhaps your ballistic missile program as well, we're going to give you more economic benefits there. But I think to get that kind of more for more outcome, and I mean, everyone should want to strengthen non-proliferation, even if you think the JCPOA was a good deal, which I did and still do, you can believe that it's absolutely worth the effort to try to strengthen it through this kind of more for more approach. But the, the foundation for more for more is the JCPOA and, 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 and that agreement remaining in force. And, you know, Iran has, 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 has at times indicated that it will be open to this kind of more for more approach. But I don't think you can get there by destroying the JCPOA. So with Iran, you're aiming for more for more again. And with North Korea, you're saying our best case is less for less. Um, so when you look at those two problems, what's interesting to me is that right now, at least, um, if you look at what the administration's doing, it would appear that Iran is a much more serious nuclear problem in their mind, even though actually Iran doesn't actually have the capability um, to do what North Korea could do right now. So is that an accurate assessment in your mind? I mean, is Iran a more threatening um, potential nuclear threat right now than North Korea? There's no doubt North Korea has a lot more capability than Iran at this moment. North Korea either has the capability to land a nuke on the United States or it's very, very close to having that capability. Um, Iran is still a fair distance from having that capability. The one place I would have sympathy somewhat with prioritizing Iran is it's a problem I think we could do more about. I mean, you know, there are some problems that are really difficult to solve and there are other problems that are easy to solve and there's easier to solve and there's nothing wrong with sometimes focusing on the easier to solve problems. Now, that was what the Obama administration did. I mean, I, 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 I think with the benefit of hindsight, and I was saying this a bit at the time, but I, I, I think I should have been, I should have said this more. I think they were they were too neglectful of North Korea. But the basic approach of prioritizing Iran because, because that was a problem you could do something about made a lot of sense to me. Um, what's perverse about what the Trump administration has done is by undoing the JCPOA, it's l recreated the Iran problem. Um, um, so now it's kind of fighting these battles on two fronts. Are we moving toward a world where... Um eventually the Iran deal looks like less for less, like what North Korea looks like right now. Uh, what I mean by this is um, one could argue perhaps that maybe back in the mid-90s, maybe you could have had a North Korea deal that was more for more. Um, but because we let this problem drag on for a really long time, now what we're essentially dealing with is less for less. With Iran, if we rip up the deal that we have, um, and now we have a country that potentially is moving more actively to advance their nuclear capabilities? Are we moving into a world where if we let this linger for a long time, then you will just have less for less on the table with Iran in the future? I think that's exactly right. The outcome of a future negotiation with Iran uh, is going to be influenced by how much capability Iran has there on the ground. And my my greatest concern about the way this plays out is Iran ends up getting the bomb. Um, you know, that's, that's 
clearly the most worrying path. Um, the JCPOA falls apart, Iran enriches to higher and higher levels, it accumulates more and more highly enriched uranium, uh, and then at some point the political decision is made to proceed um, with the actual manufacture of a nuclear weapon. Perhaps if we start down that path, that could be forestalled by some kind of future deal. But if Iran has rebuilt a lot of capability, uh, especially if it, has, if, it, if it built more capability than it had at the time we were negotiating the JCPOA, and Iran has more negotiating leverage, any deal we end up with risks being significantly worse than the JCPOA. So James, in looking at and comparing the threat that the United States faces from Iran's potential nuclear program and North Korea's nuclear program, the Trump administration came into office, I think, very much prioritizing the North Korean nuclear threat as far more urgent and needing to be dealt with immediately. Today, the priority maybe seems to be more on dealing with the Iranian nuclear program. What would, Where would you put the priority uh, when you look at those two issue sets between dealing with the Iranian program today or dealing with the North Korean program? So I'm somebody who believes in prioritization in foreign policy, that if you make everything a priority, nothing becomes a priority. Um, having said that, I think both these two issues are coming to a head at the same time, and that requires being able to deal with two nuclear issues at once, which is, which is actually challenging, surprisingly, but it is. With North Korea, Kim Jong-un has given the United States a deadline of the end of the year, to provide sanctions relief, um, or North Korea is going to, um, you know, he's threatened to end the moratorium on nuclear and missile testing uh, and to start ramping up tensions again. Uh, and I, I take that threat extremely seriously. So I think with North Korea, we're not in a metastable situation that can remain indefinitely as it is at the moment. Uh, we're in a situation that unless we can move forward, uh, providing the North Korean sanctions relief, obviously in return for them taking some steps towards denuclearization, steps in the right direction. Um, I think this is a situation that could get worse, and the, the, you know there's a timetable of the end of the year to do that. Uh, at the same time, um, Iran is ramping up its nuclear program again. Um, it's, uh, you know, as we've, as, as we've discussed, it's, it's, it's starting to violate the limits on the JCPOA. It's moving the ball forward. Um, it may decide to do that even it, faster. It may start to accelerate uh, its, its, its program. Um, and that's going to push us further and deeper into a crisis. And uh, the more advanced, uh, the, uh, the faster, Ira the further Iran pushes its nuclear program forward, the faster it does so. Um, the greater the sense of crisis, and I think the harder to deal with this problem is going to become. So partly because of circumstances and partly because of the administration's own policies, I think it's in a situation now where it really has to deal with two issues at the same time. So final question here. If you could look into your magic nuclear crystal ball and prognosticate about where you think we will be in a year's time, when it comes to dealing with Iran and North Korea. What would you say? Because I think a lot of people would not have necessarily predicted that where we are two years into this administration with Iran and North Korea would be where we are today. So where do you think 
Where do you expect that we'll land in a year from now? Yeah, well, I mean, look, prognostication is always dangerous. Um, and I think I would have done, at the beginning of the Trump administration, I think I would have done pretty well on my predictions in regard to Iran and extremely badly in my predictions vis-a-vis -vis North Korea. Um, I never would have predicted we would have had summit-level meetings with North Korea, uh, or indeed that North Korea would have done the moratorium. Three times. Um, absolutely. Uh, whereas with Iran, you know, as, as, I, as I said earlier, I thought the president was going to live up to his commitment to withdraw from the Iran deal, and that was going to lead Iran to start violating the deal itself. Um, a year from now, unfortunately, I see us in a work significantly worse place with both Iran and North Korea. Um, and, you know, let me be modest here and acknowledge there's plenty of uncertainty. A lot could change. You know, I, the future is not deterministic. It's probabilistic. There's different paths ahead of us. Uh, and uh, But the most likely path, I think, with North Korea is that um, we fail to reach an agreement with North Korea that involves sanctions relief in return for steps towards denuclearization. Uh, and North Korea starts to ramp up um, tensions again. Um, it's moratorium on particularly missile testing. Um, uh, it abandons uh, and starts to test missiles again. I think the absolute worst case scenario with North Korea, and I don't think we're going to get there in a year, but I worry we may get there eventually, is in 2017, North Korea put two threats on the table. One was to fire missiles in the vicinity of Guam, and the other was to test, conduct a nuclear test over the Pacific. Those threats, I think, are on the table now indefinitely. And we know historically that North Korea has issued threats before, which it has not fulfilled immediately, but it has done months or years after the event. So, um, as I said, I think it's pretty unlikely North Korea would do either of those two things within the next year. But I think those threats are still on the table, and I, 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 I see us in a worse place with North Korea in a, in a year from now. And frankly, the same is true with Iran. The Iran, I think, is hopeful that by it, it's using its programs for brinkman uh, its, its nuclear programs for brinkmanship let me put it that way uh, it's hopeful that by violating the jcpoa limits in ways that it says and indeed are quickly reversible that it will convince european states in particular to give it more sanctions relief um I think, though, ultimately, it will lead those European states to side more with the U.S. and not to provide Iran with more sanctions relief. And that's going to lead Iran to, to violating the JCPOA even more. Um, and I think that the U.S. government is not willing or indeed in many ways able to seriously negotiate with the Iranians. Uh, and I don't think the Iranians are going to come to the negotiating table. So I think all of that is a recipe for the JCPOA unraveling. How fast that happens and exactly what way it happens, I think, is exceptionally difficult to predict. Uh, I think one of the really significant things that I would look out for is if Iran starts to install more centrifuges. Um, you know, enriching to above the threshold, accumulating low enriched uranium is indeed stuff that can be undone pretty quickly. Installing centrifuges is much more timely and indeed, therefore, it takes longer to undo that. Uh, and so... You know, that's, that's the kind of thing that if it happened, I think would signal a real escalation of the current crisis. So, you know, look, as I say, predicting exactly how the JCPOA is going to unravel is extremely difficult. But unfortunately, I think unraveling in some way or the other is the, at some speed or other is the most likely outcome over the next year at this point. James, thank you. This has been a fascinating, if not uplifting, conversation. <laughs> With that, I'm Lindsay Ford, and this was another episode of Asia Inside Out. <laughs>